Father, we do praise you. You're great. You're awesome. You're glorious. You're amazing. You are the one who spoke and the universe came into existence. It wasn't here always. You created it. You are the one who speaks and people are healed. Lives are changed. Seas are split in half. You're the one who can come and help us navigate this difficult world right now. So we seek you. And we want to follow you like this blind man, Bartimaeus, today. So teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 46 through 52, page 576 in the Bibles that we give away. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse because that's the way God wrote it. So we're looking at Mark, and we're looking at how revelation is powerful. But what is revelation? It's a book in the Bible, isn't it? Yeah, sure. In the last book of the Bible, it reveals Jesus and how the world's going to end. So that's to re- revelation is revealing. When God reveals something, it's like shining a light on the darkness or on ignorance. And so God is revealing. Now, God has revealed himself in his creation, his words, and his deeds. Uh, He has created himself in general revelation to all of the world, in special revelation in the Bible, and in personal revelation when he speaks to his kids. Now, some might ask, why isn't he clearer in his revelation But he is crystal clear, beyond a reasonable doubt, (laughs) clear. The problem is not in God's revelation, but in our corrupt nature. We have the problem of seeing, of listening, of hearing. You see, sin makes you stupid. It's actually taught in Romans chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4. Sin makes you stupid in your head and in your heart. But if you open your eyes with a humble heart, you will see, just like Bartimaeus, the guy in our passage, saw literally and spiritually. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. They came to Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. That's kind of interesting because Bartimaeus means in Hebrew, son of Timaeus. But uh, but there you go. He gives him both his name and his dad's name. A blind beggar was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet. But he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling you. Uh, He threw off his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. Then Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately, he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. Can you imagine what it would be like to be blind? 
I mean, just you can't see anything. There's no color. There's no beauty in creation. Now, your other senses probably get better, uh, more attuned, but blind, can't see. And then imagine, all of a sudden, you can. <laughs> Everything! Wow, look at this! Can you imagine what happened to this guy? <laughs> and how excited he was, which is why he began to follow Jesus. The lights turned on. <laughs> this passage reveals the miraculous accuracy of the Bible. You're wondering, how do I get there? I'll show you. It reveals who Jesus really is, and it reveals what a true disciple is like. So let's look at this. First of all, we see... Um, that in verse 46, first verse, talks about Jericho. Jericho reveals the miraculous accuracy of the Bible. If you notice here, it says, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. So he's on the road, on the way out of Jericho. This was a uh, biblical city, very familiar. If you remember, it was the first city that Joshua, when he went in to take the land of Canaan, that he uh, laid siege on this city, Jericho. They walked around it once for six days, and then on the seventh day, they walked around it seven times and shouted, and then the walls came down, right? Okay, that's what took place in this city. According to the biblical record, they also were told, don't take anything, leave everything there as an offering to God and burn the city. So they burned the city, they left everything there, except for one guy, Achan, remember that guy? Okay, he left a little bit, or he took a little bit, ended up getting in a lot of trouble because of that, okay, but we're not gonna go there, okay. Jericho, this is what happened to Jericho, okay? Well, archeologically, we have dug up this city four times. There's been four archeological digs on the city of Jericho. In fact, when we go to Israel in 2022, that is on the schedule now, okay? 2022, we're gonna actually visit Jericho, okay? So this city's fascinating because in the four digs, they discovered several things, okay? First of all, they discovered that the walls had fallen outward. So the walls, and so all the archeologists said an earthquake must have brought this about. It could not have been an army invading Otherwise, they would have pushed the walls in, rammed the walls, they would have fallen in. So it must have been an earthquake. So that's what they said. These were not Christians who were doing this, okay? So they, they just, this is what we observe, okay? So there's, the walls fell down by an earthquake. But they also observed it was burnt. And they also found massive amounts of grain in the rubble. Grain, which is something, if somebody were to attack a city, they normally would take the grain because grain was considered like gold back then. Okay, but why didn't anybody take the grain? Because God told them not to, right? <laughs> okay, but that's evidence that this really happened. That's the point. Okay, all of these things, everything together. And by the way, grain also indicates when it would have happened. It was right after the first harvest, which is when Passover takes place, and that's when it took place according to the book of Joshua. So we see everything in place. Not only that, quite fascinatingly, in the dig, there's one of the walls still standing. 
One of the walls still stands, just like it says in Joshua that the wall that had uh, Rahab's house was built into the wall and God was going to protect Rahab. That wall was not torn down. Huh, what a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. This Jericho actually backs up, and by the way, I think it was the fourth dig. They discovered some pottery. They dated it right to the time of 1400 BC, which is when this took place. So there's all of this evidence shows not only that the Bible accurately portrays things in the distant past, but also miraculously portrays things because how in the world did an earthquake just happen to happen right when Joshua's guys were ready to go in and take the city? (laughs) Because God did it, right? So we see this. That's what it reveals. The Bible, all the way over, all the way through it, you see this over and over and over again. Um, If you're interested, the uniqueness of the Bible, this is a great book that brings out many, many more details like this of the Bible and its miraculous nature. Okay, so Jericho reveals the miraculous accuracy of the Bible. That's one revelation we see in this passage. But then secondly, Bartimaeus reveals who Jesus is. As we walk through this passage and we see what Bartimaeus declares, we see that it reveals, he reveals who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. Okay? If you remember, up to this point, there has been this secrecy theme found in the Gospel of Mark, that when someone, like even if a demon portrays it, or when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, he said, be quiet about it. He was keeping it quiet. This is the first time it's revealed by someone, and he's not told to keep quiet, because we're about to see the triumphal entry the very next you know, next week, the triumphal entry where he fully declares he is Messiah. So we see here that in Bartimaeus reveals who Jesus is, he is Messiah. Now, how does he do that? Well, first of all, we see that he says he is the son of David. Look at verse 47. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. And so here he's calling him the son of David. Well, what did he mean by that, the son of David? Well, everybody at that time would have known what he meant by that. He was calling him the future king to come in the line of David. You see, there was a covenant that God made with David found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, that we call the Davidic covenant, where God promised David that he would one of his descendants would always be on the throne. Now, uh, we also see in Psalm 89, I wish we had time to walk through that, but we don't, okay? Psalm 89 elaborates on that covenant. Fascinatingly, it also says that if one of the kings after David sins, they could be punished and even removed uh, from the land for a time, but not permanently. It specifically says that because God's covenant with Abraham, I mean with David, was eternal. An eternal covenant that he made with David that one of his sons would sit on the, on the throne forever. And that's exactly what we see in these passages. Isaiah 55, 3-5 is also uh, mentions this. So why is this important? Well, first of all, we see that David 
was the pattern for all the kings to come. Every king afterwards, if you look through First and Second Kings, First uh, and Second Chronicles, all the kings after David are compared to David. He was a king like David, or he wasn't a king like David. That's how they would describe it, because David was the pattern. Okay, first of all, it says he was a man after God's own heart, and he was a and he was the standard for all future kings. First Kings fifteen eleven is just one of those examples for the standard uh, for all future kings. But it says he was a man after God's own heart. Well, what does that mean? Acts chapter 13 discusses that. It's originally stated in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. But in Acts chapter 13, he quotes 1 Samuel and then elaborates just a little bit on it to help us understand what it means that David was a man after God's own heart. And I think this is important also for us. Do you want to be a person, a man or a woman after God's heart? Okay, so let's see what that means. What does that entail? Uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 22, first of all, says, after removing him, Saul, Saul was the first king. God said, bad king, removed him. He raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart who will carry out all my will. That's what it means to be a man after God's heart, to carry out his will, one who has the heart and desire to carry out his will. We see in verse 36, he goes on a little more. It says, for David, after serving God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and decayed, but the one God raised up did not decay. So he's referring to Jesus who would be raised from the dead. But here with David, it says, after serving God's purpose for his in his own generation. David served God's purpose in his own generation. He was faithful to do, to carry out God's will at his time. When you are faithful, that's what it means to be a man after, or a woman after God's own heart, to be faithful to God's purpose for your life at this time, okay? But it also certainly entails the amount of love David had for God, doesn't it? To be after God's heart is because you're in love with God, right? And David, when you look at his life, how much he was in love with God, uh, he wrote 75 of the Psalms. So half of the Psalms were written by David in the, in the Bible. Uh, he loved to just sit out on a hillside and play guitar worshiping God. Well, he played harp, but it's a stringed instrument. It's the same, right? Okay. I'm sure he jammed every now and then. <laughs> Look at Psalm 63. Just one example of this. Psalm 63. Uh, we, you know, over and over and over again, once again, we could look at some of these psalms. This particular psalm, uh, at the beginning, it says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Judah. By the way, you know when it has those little inscriptions at the beginning of the Psalms? Those are actually in the original text. They're in the Hebrew text. I don't know why they make it look like it's not a part of the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's in all the manuscripts that we have. Okay, so it's 
It is actually scripture, <laughs> all right? So here we have this. He's in the wilderness, and he says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. He was charismatic. You satisfy me as he was. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches. Because you are my helper, I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. NIV says, I cling to you. You see the love? He loved God. So to be a man or a woman after God's own heart is to be faithful and deeply love God. I want to tell you how I met Elizabeth. Okay. She was my bank teller. And uh, me and my partner were going, we were planting a church in Orlando, and we were going to cash our checks, and there she was. Okay. Bank teller. And my partner actually invited her to go play uh, with us, with a group of us. Uh, our our uh, young adults group was going to go out and play uh, uh, mini golf. So, we're, so we all went to mini golf, and I just clung to her. <laughs> I, just, I couldn't get enough talking to her, because this is what I noticed. She absolutely loved Jesus. And, and I knew a lot of Christian girls, and they were Christians and everything, but not like her. She loved Jesus. She was a woman after God's own heart. And that drew me to her. So two months later, I married her. I know you're supposed to wait a long time or whatever. That's one of those rules. But nah, we've been married 31 years. (laughs) So, yeah. So, those of you who aren't married yet, look for someone who is a man or woman after God's own heart and don't settle for anything less. That's all I'd say. Nothing else really matters. Okay. Now, so David was the pattern, and the promise was forever. The promise to David that someone of his lineage would sit on the throne ruling over Israel, over the people, the Jewish people, that God's promise is also to Israel, and it is a forever promise. He's not done with those people yet. We see the prophecy in Zechariah 12.10 that someday at the end of time, the Israelites are going to realize they crucified their Messiah, and they're going to mourn and repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's already beginning to happen, but this is God's promise. Look at Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Wonderful passage. Hosea 
chapter 3, and we could look at so many more. But verse 4 says, For the Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Notice here, it says there's going to be a time when the Jewish people won't have a king or even a temple to sacrifice, to offer sacrifices. Verse 5 Afterward, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, the Davidic descendant of David. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. See that? This is God's promise. So what we see here, and Bartimaeus, his phrase, Jesus is the son of David, he would have understand all of this. This was, these are the promises, the promises forever, and the ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. He is the son of David. The ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. I want you to look at Psalm chapter 2, okay? Uh, this would have been in the thoughts of Bartimaeus as he was saying you are the son of David because it's predicting what that future king would be like and it's predicting what's happening right now in this world, the whole world gathering together against God and his people. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, Meshiach, Messiah. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings... Be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage or kiss the son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger will, may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. When Jesus returns, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He's going to bring about rule on this planet. He's going to make it right. But until then, the kings that decide to follow him, they will benefit from it. But the ones who rebel, they better look out. That's what it's saying. And our country should take notice of Psalm 2. So Bartimaeus reveals that he is the Messiah. He would have thought of Psalm 2 in his hopes in a world that didn't seem fair for a blind man that had to beg for his food. But also in what happened to him. One who heals the blind. See, that's what happened to Bartimaeus, right? He ends up getting healed. What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, that's a, 
a, a familiar way of saying uh, rabbi, you know, so just a, a, a different way of saying that. The blind man said to him, I want to see, and he's healed. He gets healed, one who heals the blind. Now, to see this in context, the gospel of Mark begins and ends. This is the last miracle Jesus performs. Begins and ends with a man being blind, receiving sight. Mark is doing that on purpose because that shouts, according to the Old Testament, this is Messiah. In Psalm 42, and in, I, I mean, Isaiah 42, and in Isaiah 61, it declares that the Messiah will specifically and especially heal the blind. So we see this, and Bartimaeus certainly recognized it. Everyone else would have recognized it as well. This healing is declaring Jesus is the Messiah. Now, it's kind of fascinating here, though, because at the end, verse 52, it says, Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Now, some of your translations might say heal, right? The, the literal translation of it is saved. That's the word he's using there. Better translation, by the way, just, just saying I'm just kidding. Uh, but it means he was healed, but he uses that phrase to be saved. It is to be healed, but we see something far more than that, don't we, in the life of Bartimaeus. He is healed and he is saved, and he begins to follow Jesus, which leads us into the last section here that I want to talk about. Bartimaeus reveals what a true disciple is. He reveals what a true disciple is. First of all, he pleads for mercy. Did you see that in verse 47? So back, back up a bit. It says, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me. That's what he's crying for. He's not crying for justice. He's not saying, I want my fair share. I've lived a bad life. It's been tough on me. you got to give me something. The entitlement world that we live in today is the exact opposite of Bartimaeus. He simply realized, I cannot save myself. I cannot heal myself. Have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. Have mercy on me. And oh, if we could learn this lesson. Because God showed him mercy. Isn't that what we want? Have mercy on me. That's a true disciple. Now the crowd opposes him. That's true for disciples as well. The crowd tries to keep him quiet. Matthew even brings this out more in his uh, rendition of this passage. They warn him to keep quiet. They're opposing him in Daniel Aiken's commentary He says, mob mentality or herd behavior is the tendency to act together in unison, sometimes in morally reprehensible and unimaginable ways. Gang rape, gang beatings, even the extermination of an entire people group are tragic examples of a mob mentality. We see this. Is being liked by people a driving force in your life. Beware. Jesus warned us. Look at John chapter 15, verse 18. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 15, verse 18. Jesus is talking. He says, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. Wow. Now, he does say in verse 20, we're going to get persecuted because some are not going to receive his word, but others are going to receive it. So we're going to see people saved. Revival and persecution go together. That's what we see in the Bible. The book of Acts draws us out. I believe we will see it in our life as well. But the crowd opposes him, and that's true of disciples of Christ. But he is persistent in seeking Jesus. Persistent. It says, many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me. Son of David. He's persistent. That reminds me of Luke. Uh, Jesus t- tells a parable in Luke chapter 11. Look at this. Luke 11, verses 5 through 13. It says, he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. And he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I have gone to bed. I can't even get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. All three of these verbs are in the present tense, which means it can be uh, translated, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he's persistent. Specifically, our passage here says, ask for the Holy Spirit. He's persistent. And then, as he's persistently seeking him, look at verse 49. It says, Jesus stopped. (laughs) Jesus stopped. He's teaching us the art of stopping. Sometimes we're too busy, and we miss when someone needs help. Three days ago, I can't remember the exact day. It was when it was really cold and windy. Remember that? Just before this little bit of warm weather came. 
We call it warm. Everybody else thinks it's freezing here. But, but remember that cold? I was out for a walk, walking around the park, and a guy calls me uh, up from behind, and he says, excuse me, excuse me. And I, and I stopped, and I listened, and he said, I, where is the bridge that goes over the river, the Mississippi? And then he, then he tells me uh, his plight. He had gotten out of the hospital. Apparently, he had been beaten by somebody a couple months ago, wound up in the hospital, but because he wasn't able to pay his bill, they said, you have to leave, and he was, I guess, good enough to get out of the hospital. So he, uh, he leaves the hospital, and he had this scar, like from here all the way down, so clearly he had a major something or other happened to him. But he looked really cold, and I said, well, you probably went the wrong way if you're coming from the hospital because you came this way and you missed your turn. If you go back and go down this way, you'll see the stoplight. Then take a left, you'll see the bridge. And he lived right over on the other side of the bridge, so in Sock Rapids somewhere. And, uh, and then he, he looks at my hat and he says, boy, that looks warm. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, oh, you want it? And I gave him my hat. It was my nice Vikings hat. Okay. Now, I'm not as big a Viking fan this year, but uh, you know me, okay? So I gave him my, and this is a nice warm one. He puts it on and said, he says, oh, this is so warm. He says, where can I bring it back to you when I'm done? And I said, no, 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 it's a gift from God. And then he said this, he says, it's a gift from Jesus. What if I wouldn't have stopped? Jesus stopped. He's teaching us this. And then our passage concludes, verse 52. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. A true disciple follows Jesus. <laughs> Can you imagine it? He just gets healed. Jesus is walking along. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to get killed. So they're probably in a little more somber attitude or whatever. But this guy, he's walking with them, saying, hey, man, hey, look, look, this guy here, he healed me. I can see now. <laughs> it must have been a spectacle, <laughs> okay? But he's following Jesus. In fact, this is the only person in the Gospel of Mark that got healed but also is named, and even his dad is named. Why is that so? Because according to church history, he became a follower, and he was known in the early church. From the, of course, of course he was a follower of Jesus no matter what. But that's what we see here. He follows Jesus. You see, we are all blind. We're born with a corrupt nature, and our hearts are hard. And when we lead each other, we all end up in the ditch. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this age, Satan, blind, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they cannot see. But when Jesus shows up, the lights turn on. And we need his revelation. We need Jesus to heal our spiritual sight. Will you let him show you what is real, what is true, what actually is right. And when you ex really experience his spiritual healing and become like David, a man after God, your life will never be the same. You will find your purpose. You will share Jesus with others as well. Let me finish this little quote from Jerry Vines. 
a medical missionary performed surgery on a poor blind man that restored his sight. Sometime after the operation, the man disappeared. Then a few days later, the medical missionary opened his door, and there was the man with a rope. On that rope were ten more blind people. 